I want to, I, I really want to have some fun with you tonight. Uh, I asked Jonathan, I said, are we, we, do we have uh, just being recorded for sound or uh, sound for the room or do we have recording? He said, we're going to be recording. I said, okay. Not the first time I've been recorded, so. I want you to, those of you who can see it, I can't move it around a whole lot, but the board, I have some things on the board. We're going to study in the book of Colossians tonight. So if you turned in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 1, we'll begin there at some point. <clears throat> Colossians as a letter was written around A.D. 60. Now that in and of itself is, is not you know, too, too, except it wasn't very long after the Lord had uh, risen. But A.D. 60. And the writer clearly is the Apostle Paul. And I, I love the letters that Paul writes because he writes so eloquently, uh, even when it's translated into English. Of course, he, he didn't write it in English, but as it's recorded for us in English, it comes out that way. Now, Paul himself, however, had a little bit of a dilemma. As he wrote this letter to Colossae, he also wrote some other letters very shortly within the same time frame. One of those was the book of Ephesians. We know that Paul spent years in ministry in the church at Ephesus. He also wrote Colossians, but he also wrote a third letter during that time frame that was a personal letter to a man named Philemon. And as we'll see, even as it's mentioned in, in the letter to Colossians, we'll see why he wrote that letter, at least in part why he wrote it. But Paul was in jail. Now, he wasn't, uh, I, I look at Drew, because Drew worked with prisoners for a very long time, and he knows they all have a story. <coughs> and the first thing they will tell you is, I'm innocent. And your burden then is to understand the reality of all of that. But they want you to, they really want you to think that they're innocent and somehow maybe help them. Well, Paul wasn't that way. He knew where he was. He knew what he had to do. He took full advantage of being in prison. He dealt with every prisoner. He dealt with every guard. <clears throat> At one point when Paul was in prison, he had a guard chained to him, to each arm. And so he had, they thought he was captive to them. He, he had a captive audience because he shared Christ with them, you know, with, and they couldn't go anywhere because they were chained to his arm. Every time they changed shift, he changed his, uh, you know, and started back at square one talking about the Lord. So the Apostle Paul was a man who took full advantage of the circumstance that he found, him, found himself in. And in sharing that, one of the things that you'll find is that in particular between Ephesians and Colossians, you'll see several references written to two different churches. But the reality is Colossians was also written to a second church. He tells us in Colossians chapter 2 that, in fact, the letter was to be shared with the Laodicean church. And he even mentions an, a letter that had been uh, given to the Laodiceans that was to come to the church at Colossae. We have no reference and no record of that particular letter. But we do have a reference that from Colossians, it was to, after they had read it, after they'd studied it, after they'd <laughs> dealt with the issues associated with it, 
The letter was to go to Laodicea. Now, as, as background, we would look for, and I did, we would look for uh, the location where some of this is taking place. For instance, where is Ephesus? Okay. Now, Ephesus, if, if you think in terms of a world map that you could picture in your mind tonight, you think of the country Turkey, because in fact that's where all of these cities are, is in the, the uh, what would be the western regions of the country of Turkey. Out here is the Aegean Sea. As it comes around, Ephesus was a port city. So from a trade standpoint, they could move things by ship to Ephesus and then distribute to the rest of Asia, what was, as it was called during Jesus' time. Okay, but Colossae, on the other hand, was up in the midsection of the country. And it was, it was all, and it was, it, there were no ships going to it. It was all hike in, hike out kind of stuff. And of course, pack animals from the trade routes would have been, would have been used. Laodicea was a little bit farther inland. If you go to, to uh, if you go to Google, okay, and you ask for the ancient city of Laodicea, they'll, they will show you pictures of the ruins of that city. Now, what makes Laodicea interesting in that respect is it's one of the seven churches of Asia mentioned in the book of Revelation. Okay. And that's, that's primarily the reason why I share it with you tonight, so you can get a picture of what's going on here when we talk about the Apostle Paul being uh, a missionary and going on a missionary journey, he traveled the major trade routes of the world of that day. And almost all of the places where, where Paul actually established a church was along those trade routes. Ephesus was one of those places. He, he was there, he was there for an extended period, he left and he came back for a while. Not too many preachers come back the second time. <laughs> anyway, he did that. And it, so here's the Apostle Paul as a missionary traveling around this part of the world. And these two cities are in inland, a good distance. I tell you that because Paul never went there. Now, he wrote the, the letter to the Colossian church. But he never went there. He wrote a letter that was to be shared with the Laodicean church, but he never went there. You say, well, how would that go over? Well, we have to think that through just a little bit and consider the fact that Paul had, had the credibility as a, as a missionary. By this time, AD 60, Paul has been on missionary journeys back as far as AD 52. So he's, you know, he's not a newcomer on the block as he wrote these letters by any stretch. It's just a few years after this that Paul is uh, executed. <clears throat> Colossians, as a letter, though, was written to a young church. Now, Paul wrote them in part because they had sent the man who had been teaching and preaching and had established that local church body, a man named Epaphras. We find it in, I think it's in chapter 1. Uh, yeah, Epaphras is in uh, my glasses. Uh, I know there's verse 8 and uh, 6. Seven. It's around verse 7. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, it says, Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So you, you, you get the picture. There's, there's another man who has been trained by Paul, most likely, prior to his going to Colossae. Who goes in, they establish a local church. I find it interesting that here Paul as a missionary doesn't have the uh, doesn't have any of the um, sense of I've got to do all the work. He distributes the responsibility, he gives people that uh, the opportunity to develop and to grow. Look what he did with Timothy and with others. Paul was all about train, training people to do what? to do the very thing he was doing, to share the gospel of Jesus Christ in very, very pointed, precise terms. And so they did that. And in Colossians, the, the beginnings of all of that, Paul does what he classically does, is he, he, he opens this letter by first of all identifying who he is, the fact that he's there. So he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother. So Timothy was with him at this point. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Um, so he's identifying a group of believers. So you understand right off the bat that this letter is targeted to believers. Now that's not to say an unsaved person couldn't read it and, and, and deal with things that are supposed to be but it was primarily focused on believers and things that would be important. I mean, think about this. If, if you were the Apostle Paul and you had the opportunity to communicate to a place you've never been, but you were only going to get to do that once, what would you want to communicate? What would you want those people to hear from you? Paul would have had to have wrestled with that need. And, and, and he would have to have wrestled in such a way that these people would not only receive the letter, but they would listen with their hearts, with their minds being open. They would, it wasn't just something that would go in one ear and out the other. It was to be something to be embraced. And Paul wanted to communicate that deeply, so he begins his, his letter by addressing them as saints and faithful brothers. So he's trying right off the bat to help them see the connection that they have with him. Where? Look what he says, in Christ at Colossae. See, in Christ was, a, was an entirely new concept to the whole world. When when. God's people began to go out from, it's really the first church at Jerusalem. I like to call it First Baptist Church at Jerusalem. <laughs> but in going out, they went to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul became a missionary to the Gentiles. And, and, but he was a Jew. He was a Jew's Jew. He was a Pharisee. And by training and by living up to a certain point where, where he's converted. Now, as he looks at these things and he looks at the need, he immediately does what he does in a number of the other letters. He begins by telling them 
that he's praying for them. And he does that in rather specific terms. So let, let's look at it for just a second. He says, verse 3, We always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard before in a word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he's made known to us your love in the Spirit. Paul establishes connections. Is it important that we do that socially? Mm -hmm. That we engage other people? <clears throat> sure it is. Sure it is. And when we, when we want to communicate something, when we want to convey something, we want to be prepared to do that. We want to have a basis by which we do that. Tonight's basis is the Word of God. It's the Bible. It's not me. It's, it's, it's the Bible. And you'll look for yourself at what really is a high overview of the book of Colossians tonight. We're not going to cover all of it. In fact, there was a, um, there was a college professor that taught preaching. True story. <clears throat> and, and he gave an assignment to his students one day. He said, now I want you to take this chapter, just one chapter, of the book of Romans. He said, I want you to go back. He said, I don't want you to write sermons. He said, but I want you to think about and develop as many titles for sermons as you can get out of this text in this chapter. Well, they were all relatively new students, freshmen probably in school by the, the account as, it was, as I heard it. But they, they went did their assignment, they came back in. Some had four or five, some of them had 10, some of them had as many as a dozen and really thought they were, you know, they really had, had it together. And he looked at them and said, okay, so that's a, that's a good first start. He said, now go back and see if you can't double what you have for your next assignment. Well, they went out and they did that. They struggled. They really struggled to get that next number. Came in back into class and he, look, he looked it over and he talked to them about it. And they established who had, who had done the best so far and all that sort of thing. He said, now I want you to go back and do it again. And by this time, they were, they were really, they were really almost frustrated. <clears throat> but he, he sent them out one more time, and he brought them back in, and he said, now listen, fellas. When you're dealing with the Word of God, the truth is, there's no end. There's no end. You as a, you as a preacher, he said, now when, you, when you're starting out, you'll struggle to get that topic, you'll struggle to get that reference, you'll struggle to get that point that the Word of God is established that God wants you to have in sharing with people. That's one of the reasons why this preacher can go look at a text and see it differently than this one, or this one, or this one. They'll pick a different spot. I've sat under preachers who've taken one book of the Bible and take them three years to get through it, preaching every Sunday morning. Sometimes Sunday morning, Sunday night. And it'll take them years to get through a given a book. I found, I'd hate, to be, I'd hate to be called on it, but I found that I could take a chapter 
And you can almost, you can almost go word by word by word by word and, and develop a sermon around just one word in the text. You've heard probably a few preachers that have done that. Now, is it a good and effective way to share the Word of God? Eh, maybe yes, but maybe not too. But here's the Apostle Paul, and you and I are looking at it. There's four chapters in the book of Colossians. Colossians is rich, rich with understanding and lessons of a new church and a church that is struggling where they are to do what they need to do. They're struggling, and they, they haven't had the leadership of the Apostle Paul sitting there looking at them and talking and having that exchange. They've had someone else. And they've developed. Paul acknowledges their development right off the bat here as he talks about Epaphras. He says he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He's made known your love. But it says in, in verse, go on now. And so from the day we heard it, we've not ceased to pray for you. Praying what? Again, the Apostle Paul was very specific. He had, a, he had a great desire to see churches do what? See new Christians. See growth taking place. Seeing new Christians becoming disciples for Christ and becoming servants for God in the way that God intended. And so he, he says, so not cease to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with what? The knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Fully pleasing to him. Ooh, think about that one when you're having a tough down day. Uh, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power. He said, you don't have to do it alone. According to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks. And you'll see that phrase in those words, giving thanks or grateful hearts or be grateful. You'll see it repeated over and over in this letter. In this letter alone. It's in a lot of other letters that Paul wrote. But in this letter it's written a lot. Why? Because God wants us to have a grateful heart. God wants us to operate on the basis of a grateful heart. Grateful to who? Grateful to what? Grateful to a holy God. And I'll tell you what. I don't know about you, but when I wake up in the morning and I finally get my eyes open and see that it's daylight and it, or it's close to daylight and, and I'm on the right side of the dirt, okay? Okay, and I'm starting to actually get conscious. I may not like what I hear or feel or whatever, but, but I'm getting conscious. I'm grateful. I mean, after all, if you believe in the sovereignty of God, and I do, then you have to accept the fact that God is in control, not me, not you. And that control extends down to the very breath we breathe, to the very air we are given to breathe. If you want to keep breaking it down, you can, but it all comes from the Holy God. And the sooner we fully recognize and grab hold of the fact that God is the one who empowers us to be successful in whatever we do and however we do it. It changes our life. It changes how we approach the rest of the culture. 
And I'm here to tell you tonight, if you study this book of Colossians carefully, you'll see how to live in a COVID world. You'll see how to live in a culture that is grossly distorted. And Paul tells you where to put the focus. The things that will make a difference to you and to me and to every believer. And, and really, folks, it gives a sense of expression to the value of being a believer in a, in a world that's full of turmoil, in a world that, that is increasingly hateful toward Christians in their approach to living. This church in Colossae faced that. They also faced, they also faced the one who says, who says they've got it figured out. I love this. I love this. I'm not an apologist like you know, Robbie Zacharias who just went to be with the Lord a few, few weeks ago, a few months ago. But uh, when you study and, and preach about the Word of God and the accuracy of the Word of God and being able to defend it, defend it I'm probably not the best at it because I just I can't snap, pull it back in like I used to. But that said, we, we have this, this grand opportunity as believers to share the Word of God and people will say, well, that's just not true. Okay? Well, I'm here to tell you, Paul acknowledges that this man Epaphras and is teaching them has taught them that the Word of God and the power of Christ extends beyond anything they would have, would have said they would normally have intellectually understood prior to a relationship with God. Now, if you ever wonder why the unsaved act the way they, act the way they do, it's because they're unsaved. It's because they don't know a holy God. And they can't call on the resource of the Holy Spirit of God. Therein lies their struggle. All of our struggle. And Paul said, listen, I want to help you understand what, you, what you've got. Paul's message to them was not trying to take over what Epaphras had done. He wasn't trying to make Epaphras look more or less what, he, what had happened. Paul was trying to express to this young church... Listen, you are going to face adversity. You're going to face all kinds of trials. You're going to face all kinds of things coming at you. And they had one thing coming at them that Paul references in this letter. You'll see it in just a minute. Listen, he goes, <clears throat> verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, who's of that? This is God's glorious might. For all endurance and patience, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. Now catch this. The domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You know, there's a lot of people in, in the crowd that would say they don't know anything about God who would like to be forgiven. And sometimes, sometimes that emotion, that thought process catches up with them and gives expression in ways that we, we can't even fully appreciate. <clears throat> but they want the forgiveness of sins. They, they would like to be able to have somebody, 
that they could confess that to and God and, and know and know that they are being forgiven. And Paul said to this young church, when you receive Christ as personal Savior, you are forgiven. What a place. And so the next few verses of this letter, Paul establishes the base by which this church can function. And that base is the preeminence and the dominance of Christ and his power and the fact that they have access to and the capability of using that power, not their own so much, but his. And so look what he says in verse, beginning of verse 15. He's the image. It's referring to Christ. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. You get so many sermons out of these next few verses. <clears throat> uh, for by him all things were created. You want to talk about creation? Here's a place where Paul talks about it. For by him were all things created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. God, as sovereign God, holds the universe together. I laugh. I mean, I love, the, I love the scientific community. Don't get me wrong. I spent a lot of years working in an engineering development community. I love the scientific approach and the scientific things that go on. But the fact of the matter is, there is a point at which you, if you don't acknowledge the presence and power of the Holy God, you will go down the wrong road. And they have, many have. Not all, but many have. But here's, here is Paul saying, listen, it's God that puts it together. It's God that keeps it together. It's God that allows you to use it. It's God that gives you the power to use it. And you can move it forward. He's before all things, verse 17. Before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he's the head of the body, the church. You want to know where the church has its foundation? Right there. The body of the church. He's the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Now catch that. All the fullness of God dwells in Jesus Christ the Son. Okay? People who resist and who deny Christ as having deity are flat out wrong. Now granted, this Bible is where we take our answers from. But I'll tell you what, you don't have to live as a believer very long before you come to understand the power of the Holy God working in your life. Your eyes, your eyes get opened, and more and more you get to experience and understand that God is in control. And if you'll allow it to be so, God will reveal to you His power. And He does that. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, through Him to reconcile Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, Making peace by what? By the blood of his cross. You want to know the value of the cross of Christ? Here it is right here. You'll see another reference to it here in Colossians. But he, he gives all these things. So he's given us the credentials of Jesus Christ. He's establishing the basis by which they can have confidence. By which, by which they can come back to a point when they need to to step onto solid ground. When the things around them are, are, are just falling apart, they can come back to Christ and, and experience His healing power, His moving power, 
They can experience Christ working in their heart and in their life. And so he says to them, verse 21, this is a description of an unsaved crowd. <clears throat> he says, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Paul is now touching on the connection, if you will, that he has as a missionary and a minister for God, and how that connection is, is wrapped up in the power and the presence of Jesus Christ the very one they, they persecuted, the very one they crucified. Paul acknowledges that and establishes that for this, for this church. So then the, the next few verses of chapter 1 talk about Paul's, Paul's ministry to the church. There's a, there's a whole bunch of things in there we could go through, but I'm not, I'm not going to try to do that tonight. Uh, skip all the way down to, to chapter 2. <clears throat> Paul says, I want you to know, this is what, chapter 2 has the meat of what Paul saw as a problem coming toward this young church. And, and, and what, he, what his heart's desire, you see it unfold in chapter 2, his heart's desire is that these people would come to, to understand. I hesitate to make this comparison, but I'm going to do it anyway. <clears throat> we see all kinds of I'll call them commercials. They have a different title, but I'll call them commercials. <clears throat> that are out there by people on opposite sides of the fence, as it were. If you listen to those things, what you will hear is what hopefully <laughs> those particular people want you to hear. What you won't hear is absolute truth. At best, there'll be a little kernel somewhere of something that actually was true. But almost all of these commercials are a distorted spin that they want you to hear and believe and to take to the bank to influence you in your decision process. Paul said, listen, there's a group coming your way. There's a group coming your way. In Galatians, they're defined as the Judaizers. But they weren't the only ones. There were people who were coming into the church of God at these young Christians and coming at them and saying, Oh, no, 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 no. You can't just believe in Jesus. No, that's a bunch of hogwash. That's nonsense. You can't do that. That, does, that isn't going to get you to heaven. You've got to do this. And oh, by the way, does this, the this might entail putting a little money in my pocket somewhere. No, you might not hear that at first, but somewhere along the line you will. And they'll say things like, well, you need to, you, you need to do this, or you need to do that, or you need to... What, came to, what popped in my head was, was one of these... Uh, because I saw, I saw a number of churches in Italy at one point, and steps, hundreds of them, going from the ground level up to the first floor, if you will, of the building, 
and pilgrims. Faithful people who have a desire to give honor to God, and they do. They have a desire to give honor to God. That's why they're there. They're going up these steps on their knees, on stones, rough cut stone steps, and they're cutting their legs all in pieces. And they're going up these step after step after step in the hope that God would see them as striving to be honorable to him, worshipful to him, and somehow give to them special recognition, even special relief from their sins. It's called asceticism. And Paul mentions this specifically here in chapter 2 and in the early part of chapter 3. Also, look at verse 8 of chapter 2. I've got to keep moving here. So see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of this world, and not according to Christ. For in him, talking about Christ, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive with him having forgiven us all our trespasses, there it is again, forgiveness of sin, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Thus he set aside, nailing it, what? To the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. That's the resurrection of Christ. That's what Paul is making reference to in that last phrase the resurrection of Jesus Christ in resurrection power coming back from the dead. And it's total embarrassment to any, any authority that was out there of the day. Paul said, listen, this is what you have. This is what you have. And so when they come at you, <clears throat> and he, he talks about it in the, the next few verses, beginning at verse 16. Therefore, he says, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. What's he talking about? In the ritual of idol worship of that day, one of the things that would happen over and over and over again is they would establish the rituals in time with the seasons, with the phases, if you will, of the moon, for instance. And they would attach, they would attach almost arbitrarily uh, certain acts that you would have to do in accordance with the timing of all that in order to be recognized by God. Your sacrifice would be given at a certain very specific time, a certain date on the calendar, a certain event that had to unfold. And, and if you didn't do that, you weren't a proper Christian, you weren't a proper believer. And Paul said, listen, that's all nonsense. Uh, and, and, and he pretty much says it that way. Uh, see if I can find it.
Yeah. Um, in, in the latter part of chapter 2 now, verse 21, he says, Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, referring to things that all perish as they're used. According to human precepts and teachings, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism, we talked about that a moment ago, and severity to the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So they have, they have nothing to do, nothing to do, to contribute to, to make your body and you anything special before a holy God. Just isn't going to happen. Just isn't going to happen. And so he said in chapter 3, he, he makes it now a complete switch. He's no longer talking about what's coming their way. He's talking about how to live. He's talking about how to deal with them. How to deal with the issues of life. Does your phone do that? Yeah. See what time it is. <laughs> <laughs> I get all shook up. Anyway, chapter 3, verse 1. It says, If then you've been raised with Christ. So if you're a believer, that's what he's the challenge. If you're a believer in this church, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also will appear with him in glory. He said, folks, there is a day coming. There's a day coming when we'll come back. And we'll come back with the Savior. We'll come back with him ruling and reigning. And it'll be a whole lot different. It's so exciting. And he tells this young church, he says, listen, I want to encourage your heart. There's a point future coming. Hang on. Hang on. Grab, grab hold of the Savior, and hang on, because the ride is worth it. No matter what happens, it's worth it. So he says, uh, verse, verse 5, he gets very specific about things to put aside. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion. He's not talking about being passion for, passionate for a given, a, a given uh, uh, activity, if you will. Yeah, he is, really. But it's one specific activity he's after here. Passion one for another in what would be an ungodly sense. He's really talking about the homosexual union. When he says put aside passion, that's just unacceptable. Evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them. Now think about that. Paul doesn't point the finger at any individual and label their sin. He doesn't have to. These people were young enough in their relationship with God and they're coming to Christ that they fully remembered where they were coming from. And Paul just reminds them, we, you, we can plead guilty, many can plead guilty to these very things. He's saying, set them aside, set them aside, set them aside. Now, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, 
which is, now get this, the new self. <clears throat> this is why I, I, I so appreciate what we, we, we use the label sanctification. It's the building up of the saint gradually. When you come to Christ, you are immediately as saint as you're ever going to be. I'm here to tell you. That's as, as scriptural as it gets. Okay, you, when, you, when you're saved, you're as much saved today as you were the day you received Christ as your personal Savior. But you're not the same person in the sense that you do everything today the way you did it 20 years ago, 30 years ago. <clears throat> There's been a period of time where God has shaped your life, brought events, brought occurrences, brought trials, <coughs> brought blessings, brought any number of things into your life to do what? To shape you, to disciple you, to help you develop as a believer to be a productive, effective servant for a holy God. It doesn't happen overnight. And we, we have, we have a, a culture, and this is where we've got to be careful, so very careful with our young people. Many of our young people are, have become so accustomed to instant results. And as kids, even through the teen years, as kids, many of them have an expectation that's totally, totally off the wall, off the chart. In terms of what they, what they think they want, they want it immediately and they fully expect it to happen immediately. It doesn't work that way. And Paul looks at this young church and he says to them, hey folks, it, it is, this is not an overnight change experience that you're going to be go from, from living as an unsaved life, apart, totally apart from God, to a, to a saint who is sinless. That's why I don't believe in sinless perfection uh, theology. <clears throat> That's not going to happen. It's going to be a building process. I'm grateful it's a building process, Rick. I think what you're trying to do, you're trying to draw uh, a picture of the difference between positional sanctification versus practical sanctification. Yeah, there you go. There you go, thank you. Uh, we talk about positional, God gives us, we are, we are set apart, sanctified immediately at salvation. But from a very practical standpoint, there's a building process that takes us through that. And God does that, we don't do that. God does that. If what we have to be, and Paul is encouraging this church, be open. Be open. So he says in verse 12, he starts to talk about it. Okay. And he said, oh, by the way, put on a new self. And he said, there's not a Greek nor a Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. He said, listen, Christians are Christians in Christ, in Christ. The rest of the labels we put out there are inconsequential. Have no value. No value add whatsoever. We need, to, we need to focus on what God is doing and what God's doing in our own lives. So look at, look at verse 12. He says, so put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on what? Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 32 says exactly the same thing. 
It's not a quote, but, it's, but the, the meaning is the same. <clears throat> it's, it's about living as a believer and striving to give honor to a holy God, even forgiving as God has forgiven us. What a place, and what an opportunity we have to live. Okay, but he said, this is what happens. <clears throat> now, now does, does your sense of forgiveness come into full swing the moment you're saved? Probably not. Okay. God will put it on your heart to forgive. But at the same time, that's part of the sanctification process. And we need to learn to do that. There's, there's circumstances, places, you can, you can talk about it in your personal life, you can talk about it in your work life, you can talk about it in your retirement life, you can talk about it in any phase of life you happen to be in. There is a very real sense as we interact with other people that people are just plain going to say something stupid. They're going to, you know, they're going to make us. They're, they're going to be trying to trying to make make a joke, and they're going to be over here on this wavelength, and they're going to say that what they think is a joke to someone who's over here on this wavelength, and instead of being received as something that's humorous, they receive it as they see it as offensive, highly offensive, nasty, perhaps, ugly, perhaps. Who knows? When that happens, you need to settle it right off the bat. Settle it right off the bat. I'm sorry. That was, at the very least, it was in poor taste. I'm sorry. Be willing to forgive. That's a place that the early church had to learn to live. Completely different than the culture around them. And they had just stopped for a second and say that. If you think about what's happening in the culture, we ought to be living a life that so honors God that our friends, our neighbors, the people around us, the people in the grocery store, the people on the street, the people who just ran into the back of our car and tore it up, uh, they need to see something different about us than about the average citizen of the day. I talking with one of the folks that would come in and I haven't been listening to the Inquisition. <laughs> Our Supreme Court Justice questioning that's going on. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'll just say it this way. I've been thrilled. <laughs> I've been thrilled. They haven't, they haven't found anything they can take wild shots at yet. I don't think they're going to either. All right, so he says this. Uh, above all these things put on love which binds everything together in pure, perfect harmony and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful there it is again be thankful let the word this is a verse that's often memorized let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. May I suggest to you that that, that, that phrase is a, is a beautiful definition of a local church and of the activities of a local church and of the ministry of what we get to do as a local church? 
Those are all the things. There's preaching there, the Word of God dwelling in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. That's our worship, praise songs, music. With thankfulness in your hearts to God, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is the place that God wants you and I to live. I used to get hung up with great theological discussions. Uh, most of them were in the wee hours of the night in the freshman dorm sitting on the floor with about 10 other guys. <clears throat> I've long since gotten past that. I'll still have the discussion somebody wants to. But I, but I don't go after it particularly these days. Because the great theological discussion usually is on something that we really don't have crisp definition for. And the end result is, is not going to be any different than, it has, than it's been for centuries, with lots of other people addressing the same issue. And the conclusion I came to is really quite simple. It's this. I would rather take that which the Bible says clearly, and I need to do. I would rather take that and focus my life and energy on striving to do that than to waste my time and energy trying to figure out something I don't understand and I don't need to understand to function as a believer. If I just did what God plainly tells us to do, I'd be a better operating Christian. Now, does that make sense? Sure. So look what Paul does as he steps, and, I, and I'm, going to, I'm going to step into a thing here, because the first part of this verse sets everything off these days. Verse 18 says, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Stop right there for a second. What has Paul just entered into? Remember, he's talking to a young church. What's he just entered into? He has moved from the theological and the group discussion to a level of personal now that touches all of us as families. He's moved into the family. He's moved into the unit, the smallest unit of government that existed in his day, husband and wife, maybe some children. But he's moved into the family and he's embarking on a path to suggest what has to be ha what has to happen. Now, here's the, here's the problem. <clears throat> in his day, in his day, the marriage relationship and the interchange between husband and wife very different than what we have today. Very different. I suspect the women were still smarter than us guys back then. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> but they had to be, they had to be more uh, careful about it, I guess. I'm not sure. I could stick my foot in so deep I can never get out to have this discussion, but I want to say this. What Paul is addressing is order. Okay. Not a command, but an orderly methodology for living and operating. 
He's saying to the family, I've charged the man with responsibility. That goes all the way back to Genesis 3. I've charged the man with responsibility. I'm going to hold him to it. Oh, by the way, wives, you need to hold him to it, too. This is how you do it. He goes on and he addresses children. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Tell that to a 16-year-old. <laughs> Doesn't make the value of it or the need for it any less. But it does suggest very strongly that we, we struggle in that arena and we live in a culture that blows that off like water off a duck's back kind of stuff. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. That's grandfathers too, by the way. <coughs> My tongue's about an inch shorter than it was yesterday. <laughs> Am I biting it? The direction is one of order, and he moves from the smallest unit of, of leadership and direction of exchange between two individuals, a husband and wife. He moves from that all the way through to the workplace and, and even to government if you go to Romans 13. Romans 12 and Romans 13 take you through this whole process that we're looking at right here. Ephesians 5 takes you through the same process. But <clears throat> as he looks at this, bond servants. In Paul's day, there were what we would, what we would call indentured servants. They sold themselves literally because, <clears throat> because they didn't have a place to live. They didn't have anything that they could do. They couldn't get a job kind of stuff. They didn't own land. This was an agrarian society. If you didn't own land, you were hard-pressed to find a trade. Well, some of them would sell themselves into servitude, or in the Jewish economy, in the Jewish realm, it was seven years. And they would be the servant of that family. And it was a, it was a fairly close relationship, bond service. But there were, there were and, and unmistakably were, slavery in every sense of the word was there as well wasn't uncommon. In the Roman world, outside the body of Christ, it was rampant. And it was enforced very hard. <clears throat> Paul said, listen, the challenge, Onesimus was a slave. The letter of Philemon was about bringing that slave Onesimus back to the man who was listed really as his owner, his master. Onesimus had come to Christ under the ministry of Paul in Rome, and now he was going to be sent back to Colossae, or to, yeah, to the area of Colossae, but it was to Philemon, and to Philemon's household. So the issues of life, even those that are in our culture today, are not, don't go unaddressed in the scripture, but listen to what he says about bond servants. Bond servants obey in everything those that are your earthly masters. Not by way of eye service. Don't do it just because they're watching. As people pleasers, don't do it just because you want to please the boss, if you will. <coughs> but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing this, that, the, that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. 
you are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. God will judge. God will take care of anything that we would perceive to be as inequities. And that's a nice way to turn for sense of some are living lives of terror. Okay, but here's, here is the Apostle Paul addressing this young church and saying, listen, you want to have a church that thrives? Give honor to a holy God. I'm giving you a pathway that helps you understand how to do that. That's really what this is. How to do that. And to do that with a holy God. So he reiterates on that chapter 4, verse 1. He says, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. He says, listen, God's in charge. Don't forget that. Whenever you're tempted to overstep your bounds, to do something you ought not to do as a leader, remember who's your boss. Remember who's your leader. And remember who sees it. Even the military model that we classically talk about in our country is really, when you dig underneath it, and we don't have time to do that tonight, but when you dig underneath it, it's a servant leadership model. Even the military. And let me tell you, they're having some time. We need to pray for our soldiers. Not just because of the battlefield, but because of the battle for hearts and minds that's going on across the board in the service of the world. It's horrible. So he says, listen, continue steadfastly in prayer, be watchful in it with thanksgiving. With thanksgiving. At the same time, pray for us. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders. Okay? And then he goes on, he, he talks about some of the others who will be sent. He talks about some of those who are working closely with him. Paul was connected to people even while he was in prison. I don't know how that worked. I don't, I don't, I don't know how they... They were able to communicate with each other. I don't know how they made contact. I don't know how they exchanged paper, clothing, different things. But somehow that was allowed. In one case, Paul was under house arrest, and I could see where that would, be, would have been possible. Okay, guards, let's go. You know, take a while. <laughs> that could happen. But some other places where Paul was in prison, it wasn't a pretty place. And it wasn't an easy place to get to either. I don't know how that happens. But... Paul extends greetings in chapter 4. We've covered almost the entire book very loosely. There's lots of opportunity to, to build out, if you will, living for Christ in a world that really doesn't want you even there. We're going to see more and more and more of that in our country and in other places. It's already rampant in Europe. And, and in a number of other places of the world, it's worse than that by a good bit. Uh, an organization that's out there that speaks to that very, very pointedly and very well. But notice, notice another time. All right. That's my overall synopsis of the book of Colossians. Sometimes we lose sight when we're doing an individual sermon or a study from, uh, from a book and we pick a few verses here or there or wherever and the topic and the subject and whatever, or we're going through it even verse by verse, we lose sight of it. To get an overall picture, and that's what I tried to give you tonight, is an overall picture of the Apostle Paul's heart and God's heart in the development of a new local church.
because that's what Colossi was at this point in history. 